Turn in your Bibles to the book of Romans. The book of Romans. Good to see all of you this evening. I don't know how far we'll get. Thus far, we've been pretty successful um, finishing each study, but one. But we'll see how far we get uh, this evening. Romans uh, chapter 4. Romans chapter 4. Verse 3, what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was counted unto him for righteousness. Now to him that works, the reward is not reckoned of grace, but of debt. But to him that does not work, but believes on him that justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted for righteousness. Even as David also described the blessedness of the man under whom God imputes righteousness without works, saying, Blessed are they whose iniquities are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man to whom the Lord will not impute sin. Let's pray. Our Father, we call upon you this evening in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, We have come to look into your most holy word and pray that you'll give us an understanding as we consider this great and important doctrine of alien righteousness. We pray, Father, that you will open up our minds and our understanding. We may have a grasp upon this particular teaching in your word, which is vital to our salvation. We ask your mercy upon Lee Barton and upon Ed Adamowicz and upon Gary Scott and upon Ann Scott, Shirley Murphy, Jan Houston, many of these who are sick, who are ill. We ask, Father, that you would be with them and uh, they may sense your presence and that if it would please you, you will restore their bodies and heal them. We ask all of these things in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, for his sake, amen. Well, it's good to see all of you. We're going to begin tonight what I call, having a little study on alien righteousness. Alien righteousness. July the 2nd, 1505, Martin Luther was returning from his family home in Mansfield, uh, Germany, going to effort where he was studying law and he was caught in a storm, a very bad thunderstorm in the hamlet of a little place called Stadenheim. And the thunder rumbled and the lightning nearly struck him. And after having been knocked to the ground by a particularly violent strike of lightning, Luther begged St. Anne, or St. Anna, to save his life, vowing to become a monk if he survived. Now, St. Anne was the patron saint of miners and people in distress 
in thunderstorms. <laughs> well, he did survive, and he did keep his promise. He left the university, and he entered into St. Augustine's Monastery in Erfurt in Steidenheim in Germany. Some 34 years later, in his table talk, Luther said that many individuals tried to dissuade him from his decision during the two weeks between the vow he made and the time he actually entered the monastery. Now, his father Hans, H-A-N-S, Hans Luther, was enraged at his son's decision to leave the university and go into the monastery because he had envisioned a lucrative legal career for his son, uh, Martin. Now, during his time as a monk, Luther was a pious Roman Catholic, and he revered the Virgin Mary, and he undertook the most menial and humiliating duties, hoping to subdue his pride. He begged in the streets. He swept floors. He subjected his body to rigorous asceticism and self-inflicted torture. I read one place where he slept on a concrete slab in the wintertime with no covering. He was obsessed with finding peace, the peace of salvation promised by the scriptures. But he repeatedly failed. He was ordained to the priesthood May the 2nd, 1507, at which time he performed his first Mass. He was doing fine in that Mass. He had been instructed by his teachers that a priest actually holds his God in his hands in the Mass and offers him to others. Of course, Luther had a very serious doubting of his own worthiness to perform such a task, and he began to tremble at the altar, and apparently he could not continue on his own as he contemplated the fact that he was holding God in his hands, according to the Roman Catholic teaching of the Mass. And he had to be assisted to complete the ceremony. Well, in 1510-1511, Luther's, one of his little dreams came true. He wanted to go to Rome, Rome where the saints were, Rome where supposedly Peter had been there, the first pope, Rome where the pope was, and all the venerated uh, things the Roman Catholic Church claims to have. But when he got there, he was appalled at the unbelief and the immorality of the papacy the Pope, and everything that has to do with it. He was appalled with the office and the authority of the Pope. But perhaps the greatest attraction in Rome, for Luther at least, was not, it wasn't really seeing some of the important people and seeing the city of the Pope and the saints, but he wanted to go to those 28 white marble steps of the famous Scala Santa, the sacred stairs, where they were located. 
Now, these 28 steps were supposedly the very steps leading up to the praetorium of Pontius Pilate, the same ones ascended and descended by our Lord Jesus Christ and upon which his blood fell as he was coming down from it. And according to the testimony of Luther's son, I looked this up, he's had a son named Paul, and according to his son Paul, who claims to have heard it directly from his father in 1541, Luther ascended those 28 steps on bended knees, kissing the places where Christ's blood was said to have fallen. Almost 700 years before Luther was born, Pope Leo IV in 850 A.D. had the revelation that all who are claimed, you know, to have that revelation, that all who climbed those 28 steps on bended knee would be granted an indulgence. And Luther wanted that indulgence. Now, according to the Roman Catholic teaching, an indulgence is the full or partial pardon and remission of temporal punishment for sins after the sinner confesses and receives absolution from the church. So according to the Roman Catholic teaching, every sin must be purified here on earth or after death in a state called purgatory. But while Luther was ascending the Scala Santa, the sacred stairs, he was apparently struck by his futility uh, and, and the futility of his actions, whereupon he rose and returned to Germany. And he later said of that experience, this is all, you can find all of this uh, really on, a lot of it on the internet. I checked some of my church history books and got some of this information from there. But he later said of that experience in Rome, quote, some people took money to Rome and brought back indulgences. I, like a fool, carried onions there and brought back garlic. What did he mean by that? Well, Martin Luther had a tremendous struggle with guilt. And he had carried his guilt and his despair to Rome, hoping to find some peace in his soul and to be rid of that guilt that so burdened him down. But he had come away with a deeper despair. He went there with onions and he came away with something worse, garlic. Now he went there to get rid of his guilt, but he came away more guilty than when he went. He went there in bad shape, but he left in worse shape. And it is said that while others would spend a few minutes in confession, that each of these priests would have their father confessor. And it says that while most of these priests would spend a little while, a few minutes in confession, Luther would spend hours. And then after he would leave the confession while heading back to his room, he would remember things he hadn't confessed and he'd go back to the confessor to spend even more time. And I heard that the confessor finally told him, you're going to have to find somebody else. Because <laughs> he spent hours confessing his sins. And as a result of this experience in Rome and probably many others, Luther he, he posited, he nailed, 
the 95 theses or the 95 statements which he nailed to the church door at Wittenberg, or in the German, they, all the W's are pronounced. You know, we have Volkswagen, it's Volkswagen. <laughs> so it's, it's Wittenberg uh, on October the 31st, 1517. That means that 2017 was the 500th anniversary of Martin Luther in 2017. Now in these theses or these statements, Luther condemned the excesses and the corruption of the Roman Catholic Church, especially the papal practice of selling indulgences, which is collecting money for the forgiveness of sins. That was another Pope Leo, Pope Leo X, who in 1515 authorized the sale of indulgences by Archbishop Albert of Brandenburg. The money from the sale of those indulgences was used to finance the ongoing construction of St. Basilica in Rome. The Roman Church teaches that although the guilt of sin was forgiven by the death of Christ, the penalty for it must be endured for a while in purgatory until the church can pray you out of it. The purchase of an indulgence would exempt a person from suffering all or part of that time in purgatory. Archbishop Albert selected a fellow named Johann Tetzel, John Tetzel, T-E-T-Z-E-L, to lead in the effort of selling those indulgences. And you see they're trying to raise money. It said that Tetzel was a master of portraying the agonies suffered in purgatory. In other words, he was a super salesman, and he persuaded multitudes to purchase the remission of their sins through purchasing indulgences. And when Luther nailed those 95 theses or statements to the door of the church at Wittenberg, he wasn't calling at that time for a revolution. He was simply inviting debate regarding the subject of indulgences and their abuse. And he wanted, what he wanted, he wanted to restore a purified Christianity in Germany. Well, in time, the issue of the indulgences faded away into the background, and the issue became papal authority the authority of the Pope. The question was, was the Pope the final interpretive authority over all Christians? Was he infallible in his decrees? Or was the Bible the ultimate standard and the only inerrant authority over the conscience and the behavior of Christians? So sola scriptura, or the scriptures alone, was the first of the five solas that came out of the Protestant Reformation. I'll say more about that in just a minute. Luther was officially excommunicated in 1520, and he responded to that excommunication by publicly burning the papal bull of excommunication. The bull was an official proclamation by the Pope. There were calls for Luther's condemnation, 
But while the emperor of Germany was unsympathetic to Luther's arguments, he insisted that he should be given a hearing. Of course, all of Luther's friends were fearful that he would be condemned and that he would be executed. Because a hundred years earlier, John Huss had been burned at the stake, taking a stand against the Pope, truth. This is what Luther said, quote, even if the emperor calls, W-O-R-M-S, that's a place in Germany, in order to kill me or to declare me empire, I shall offer to come. With Christ helping me, I shall not run away, nor shall I abandon the word in this struggle, end of quote. On April the 18th, 1521, Martin Luther made his stand for the supremacy of Scripture at the Imperial Assembly, known as the Nobles and Archbishops, headed by the Holy Roman Emperor, Charles V. And he was asked two questions. Were the pile of books there in front of him, were they his books? And number two, would he recant of the doctrines within recant, R-E-C-A-N-T, is to say that no longer do you hold the opinions that you have set forth in those books. You don't hold that opinion anymore, that belief you've abandoned that, especially those that were considered to be heretical. So Luther acknowledged that the books were his. But he said this. He said, uh, let me have a day to consider answering you on the second part of that. That is, would he recant? So no doubt he spent the night in prayer. And the next day when he appeared before the nobles and the archbishops, he refused to recant unless he could be convinced from the Bible. He was then challenged once more if he would recant his teachings. And this led to this famous quote. Many of you have heard this quote. Unless I am convinced by the testimony of the Holy Scriptures or by evident reason, for I cannot believe, for I can believe neither the Pope nor councils alone, as it is clear they have erred repeat, repeatedly and contradicted themselves. So unless I am convinced by the testimony of the Holy Scriptures or evident reason, I consider myself convicted by the testimony of the Holy Scripture, which is my basis. My conscience is captive to the Word of God. Thus, I cannot and will not recant, because acting against one's conscience is neither safe nor sound. God help me. Amen. Now, because of that response, all further hearings were canceled, and Luther was sent back to Wittenberg. Within a month, he was declared an outlaw of the empire. And obviously, there's much more to the story, but the end result of uh, Luther's stand was the supremacy of the word of God over the traditions of men. Now, as I mentioned last week and the week before in our study, uh, on the study of the constituents of biblical faith, there were five solas 
upon which the Protestant Reformation stood. Sola Scriptura, Sola Gratia, Sola Fide, Sola Christus, Sola Deo Gloria. That is, Scripture alone, grace alone, faith alone, Christ alone, to God alone be the glory. That is, according to the Scripture alone, one is justified by grace alone, through faith alone, by Christ alone, for the glory of God alone. Neither the Pope, nor the preacher, nor anything or anyone else, nor the emperor, can share in the glory and the praise of the salvation of God's people. The Lord alone is the originator of it, the cause of it, the sustainer of it, and the finisher of it. Thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. So you see, the Roman Catholic Church believes in the Scriptures, but not the Scriptures alone. The Pope's authority must be added. The rules and regulations created and enforced by the Roman Church, tradition, good works, many other things come up. They believe in grace, but not grace alone. So means to grace were invented and added. One gets to grace, to the grace of God, through the sacraments of the church, through infant sprinkling through the Mass, through confession, etc. These so-called sacraments make grace available. So the Roman Church believes in grace, but not grace alone. Now Paul tells us in a very famous verse, a couple of verses that we know, for by grace are you saved, or for by grace literally have you been saved through faith, and this faith is not of your doing. It is the gift of God, is not of works, lest any man should boast. So let me quote from the Roman church itself. This is what it says in one of their official documents. Quote, the sacraments are efficacious signs of grace. What does efficacious mean? We, I talked to you about that a few weeks ago. Effective. Effective. The sacraments are efficacious signs of grace instituted by Christ and entrusted to the church by which divine life is dispensed to us, end of quote. In other words, the Roman church believes that a sacrament is a sacred and visible sign that is instituted by Jesus, our Lord, to give us grace. So grace is received through the sacraments. A sacrament or a spiritual power is believed to be transmitted through the material elements viewed as channels of divine grace. For Roman Catholics, there are seven sacraments through which grace comes. Trying to give you an idea of what Martin Luther was taught and what he was battling against. The seven sacraments through which grace comes from birth to death, baptism, which is really sprinkling, the Eucharist, that's the communion, confirmation, marriage, ordination, anointing the sick, and the last rites. Now, three things are required for a sacrament to be valid. You have to have an outward 
invisible sign, which is for the eye. You have to have a form of words, which is for the ear. And you have to have a person to administer those sacraments that they uh, could be valid because they were ordained of God. And in the third place, the Roman church believes in faith, but not faith alone. Added to faith must be participation in the sacraments, live a Christian life, pray daily, obey the moral law, penance, indulgences, accept the teachings of the church, which cannot be, in the Roman Catholic's mind, the teachings of the church can't be separated from the teachings of Christ, baptism or infant sprinkling, which is absolutely necessary for salvation. So in other words, to obey the church is to obey Christ. Minimum requirements, and I got this out of Roman Catholic documents, minimum requirements are attendance upon Mass every Sunday and observe holy days of obligation. Faith is threefold. Faith is, number one, the sum of truths revealed by God in Scripture and tradition of the church and that which the Catholic Church presents in a brief form in its creeds. Fourthly, the Roman Church believes in Christ, but not Christ alone. Added to the works of Christ are the works commanded by the church, like Mariology, the worship of Mary, confession, penance. The sacrament of penance, also known as reconciliation, is usually associated with dying people. The Roman Catholics, this is called the last rites. It's a final blessing given a dying person to prepare them for heaven. Here's a quote from a Roman Catholic. The dying person repeats their baptismal promises or the Apostles' Creed. The priest recites the Our Father prayer. Communion is administered by the priest who says in these last rites when he gives this wafer, this is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And they are taught that they are receiving the body and the blood of Christ. I'm not going to go into transubstantiation. Most of you have heard that language, transubstantiation. Trans means across, substantiation from substance. So it means that the Roman priest changes the substance of the wafer and the substance of the juice into the actual body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. Fifthly, although the Roman church teaches that God alone is glorified, it is abundantly clear that this is not really the case. From Mary to the saints, to the Pope, to the priest, to the will of man, it's clear that God alone is not glorified. So let's think with all of that background, let's think about the biblical view of our salvation. Now David said in Psalm 32 and verse 2, Blessed is the man unto whom the Lord imputes not iniquity, and whose spirit, in whose spirit there is no guile. And we just read in Romans chapter 4 and in verse 6, David describes the blessedness of the man unto whom God imputes righteousness without works. Romans chapter 4 verse 6. Romans, Romans chapter 4, verse 8, Blessed is the man to whom the Lord will not impute sin. Romans chapter 4, verse 11, 
He received the sign of circumcision, a seal of the righteousness of the faith which he had, even though he had not been circumcised. This is Abraham. How many of you know that Abraham was a Gentile? <laughs> Did you know that? He was a Gentile. He, he, he became a believer before he was ever circumcised. Paul points this out in Romans chapter 4. All you have to do is read it. And I just read it to you, Romans 4.11. Let's, let's open the Bible there. Romans chapter 4, verse 11. Let's begin in verse 8. Blessed is the man to whom the Lord will not impute sin. That's where we stopped reading a while ago. So then Paul asks, asks this question. Does this blessedness, verse 9, come only upon the circumcision? Now who's the circumcision? Well, that's the Jew. The Jew is marked by circumcision. Does this blessedness, this imputation of sin, does this come upon the circumcision, the Jew only, or also upon the uncircumcision? For we say that faith was reckoned to Abraham for righteousness. Now watch what he does. Verse 10. How then was it reckoned? Was it reckoned? Was, was Abraham counted righteous when he was in circumcision or in uncircumcision? No, in not in circumcision, but in uncircumcision. He was declared righteous. What is the sign of the Jewish people? It's circumcision. He was declared righteous before he was circumcised. This is the point that Paul is making here. So he said he received, watch this now, verse 11, not he received the righteousness of circumcision, he received the sign, verse 11, the sign of circumcision, the sign of righteousness, a seal of the righteousness of the faith which he had yet being uncircumcised. So he was declared righteous while he was a Gentile, before he was a Jew. And it says that he might be the father of all of them that believe, whether they're Jews or Gentiles, though they are not circumcised, that righteousness might be imputed unto them also. Verse 12, and the father of circumcision to them who are not of the circumcision only, but who also walk in the steps of that faith of our father Abraham, which he had being yet uncircumcised. Romans chapter 4 and in verse 22, he says again, it was imputed to him for righteousness. Romans chapter 4 verse 23, now it was not written for his sake alone that it was imputed to him, but for us also to whom it shall be imputed if we believe on him that raised up Jesus our Lord from the dead. Romans chapter 5 verse 13, until the law was in the world, sin is not imputed when there is no law. Now, Martin Luther, by the Spirit of God, saw a kind of righteousness. See, he was seeking peace, and he was doing everything he could to find peace. If it said walk a mile, he walked two. It said walk with peas in his shoes, he would walk with rocks in his shoes. He would sleep on slabs in the wintertime with no clothes. He would punish himself. He walked up those steps, but something happened to him when he was walking up those steps. Those steps supposedly that Christ had walked up, something happened. And he just did a few of them, and he got up, and he left, and he went back home. He probably was beginning to realize how silly and how foolish that was. So he discovered a kind of righteousness that set him free, and it gave him the courage that he had through which the Lord brought about what we call 
the Protestant Reformation. Now to explain this to you, let me say that there are two views of righteousness. One view we call the analytical view, and the other view we call the synthetic view. Let's see if I can explain it to you. The Roman righteousness, the Roman church righteousness, is analytical righteousness. Now, do you know what a tautology is? T-A-U-T-O-L-O-G-Y. A tautology is saying the same thing twice in different words. So every analytical statement is a tautology. For example, if I said a triangle has three sides. Now, what's the subject of that sentence? Triangle has three sides. That's the predicate. Am I saying anything different in the predicate than I've already said in the subject? Triangle has three sides, right? A bachelor is not married. Hadn't said anything different. Two plus two equals four. You take the equal mark, two plus two is the same thing as four on the other side of the equal mark. You follow me now. I want to make sure you follow me. So when something is predicated, and this is not my doing, this thought I'm giving to you. I got this thought from a friend uh, uh, who had an unusual way of teaching. And he said when something is predicated of a subject that explains the predicate, you've got an analytical reasoning situation. When there's nothing new in the predicate, a triangle has three sides, then you have a subject that tells you everything you need to know and there's nothing in the predicate that's in any different. Okay? And this is what we call a tautology. You're saying the same thing twice in different words. Now, Roman Catholicism, and I want you to know what they, what they teach because I know many of you have Roman Catholic friends and I do too. You need to know this. When a person dies that's a Roman Catholic, that person is subjected to an examination by God himself. And God looks you over, and if you are not really and personally without sin, personally and really in yourself without sin, you can't go directly to heaven. You must go to purgatory. Now, if God examines you and he sees that you are really and personally just, and you know I've told you many times that the word translated just is the same word translated righteous. When we read, for example, in Romans chapter 1, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. Verse 16, it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For therein is the righteousness of God revealed. Therein is the justice of God revealed from faith to faith. As it is written, the King James Version says, the just shall live by faith. You can put the righteous shall live by faith because it is the same word. Okay? So according to, this is what Luther was dealing with, when a person dies, you receive 
Now, do you know everything? Do I know everything? Absolutely not. We fool each other. We fool ourselves sometimes. We act one way, but we're really another way inside. Right? But God knows everything. So they say that you receive an omniscient examination upon death. God looks you over. This is the way they justify purgatory. And if you're not really and personally without sin, you can't go directly to heaven. You must go to purgatory. Now, if he sees that you are really and personally just and righteous, you can go directly to heaven. But if you are guilty of unforgiven mortal sins, lust, gluttony, greed, sloth or laziness, anger, envy, pride, if you haven't had the priest pronounce absolution, if the, if the priest hasn't absolved you of those and you die without, without those sins being forgiven by the priest, you bypass purgatory and you go directly to hell. So if I say, Bill is a sinner. There's nothing in the predicate, a sinner, that's any different from the subject, Bill. I am a sinner, right? Bill is a sinner. That's a, an example of an analytical righteousness. For our justification is subject, if our justification is subject to us being righteous at death, what does that mean? That means nobody's going to heaven. If you're not personally righteous at death and you hold the Roman Catholic view, nobody is going to heaven, not even after purgatory. But what about this alien righteousness, which is what I've titled this study. Look at Romans 1, the passage I just read for you, verses 16 and 17. Martin Luther was reading Romans 1, 16 and 17. And the Lord revealed what has since that time been called synthetic righteousness. It says here, in the last part of verse 17, the just shall live by faith. The righteous shall live by faith. Now that statement does not mean primarily how you live in this world. Of course you must live in this world by faith. But that's talking about your spiritual life before God. How are you going to live with God? How are you going to bypass all of the omniscience of God? Uh, it says the righteous shall live by faith. And Martin Luther saw that this righteousness is what he called an alien Righteousness. The just, the righteous, shall live before God by faith. When God looks at the believer, what's an analytical statement? An analytical statement is when there's nothing different in the predicates in the subject. But a synthetic statement is when something's been added in the predicate that wasn't in the subject. Bill is a sinner. That's a, that's a, Analytical statement. 
Because Bill, me, is a sinner. Those are the same thing. But if our justification is subject now, remember, to being righteous at death, we have to perish. But when God looks at the believer, he sees something that's added. He sees something in the predicate that's not in the subject. If you say, Bill is righteous, that's a synthetic statement. Because Bill, being a sinner, righteous is something totally different. If Bill is righteous, then he must have a righteousness that is not his. And Martin Luther called this a foreign righteousness or an alien righteousness, something that's alien to me. I must be justified by a righteousness that's alien to me, a righteousness that is not my own, a righteousness that is added, or Paul uses the word imputed, to me. R.C. Sproul says this, quote, justification by faith alone is shorthand for justification by Christ alone. We just read earlier in Ephesians 2.8 that even the faith by which you believe is a gift of God. For by grace are you saved through faith, and that is not of you, is not of yourselves. It is the gift of God. So the only way that I can get through the gates of glory, the only way I can get past the keeper of the door of heaven, if I, have, is if I have somebody else's garment on. I got to have somebody else's robe on that's perfect to cover me. I have to have a perfect righteousness that is not mine. Remember what I told you, I've told you over the years many times, when I used to teach the kids way back when I first met Larry McKnight a long time ago and some of the rest of you. And I would ask those children, I'd say, boys and girls, how good do you have to be to go to heaven? And I would play with them a little while. Well, you got to be real good, Brother Sasser. you got to be extra good. you got to be extraordinarily good. And I'd say, you know how good you have to be to go to heaven? I said, you got to be as good as God. That's how good you got to be to go to heaven, as good as God. And the only man that's ever been in this world is as good as God is the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, the question is, and I've explained this many times too, so if you're hearing some things that I've said, but this is the heart of the gospel. This righteousness that I must have is a righteousness that is not found in me, but it is assigned to me by the forensic judgment of God. I am right now righteous before God, yet I am a sinner. Considered analytically, like the Roman Catholic Church views me, I am a sinner. But considered synthetically, I am righteous. I've got somebody else's righteousness on. No imputation. Let me tell you how important this doctrine of imputation is. No imputation means no justification by faith alone. If you take away imputation, you take away righteousness. If you take away righteousness, you take away salvation. If you take away salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone, you destroy the gospel, you have no gospel. 
Well, where does this righteousness come from, this alien righteousness? Where does it come from? Remember, I've talked to you many times about the active and passive obedience of Christ. What was Jesus doing in this world while he was living here? He was earning a righteousness by perfect obedience in word, thought, and deed, perfect obedience to the law. But he didn't need that righteousness because he was virgin born. He was born without sin. So he has a righteousness that's alien to me to give me and to charge to my account through faith in him. His, his active obedience, he earned a righteousness. His passive obedience, he received all of that judgment for my sins because he didn't have any sins to be judged for except the sins that were charged to his account. He didn't actually become a sinner. He was personally innocent, but he was officially guilty. I am personally guilty, but I am officially innocent. I am righteous in the sight of God. So while I am acceptable in the beloved, at the same time, I'm still a sinner in myself. How can I be forgiven? The passive obedience of Christ. He, he endured all the judgment and the punishment that was due to me. So I'm punished in him. When he died, I died. When he was buried, I was buried. When he rose again, I rose again. And now, as Paul says in Ephesians 1, I sit in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. God required a lamb without blemish. Didn't he? Christ was a lamb without blemish. He required love for his law with all my heart, all my soul, all my strength, all my mind, and the only person who has ever done that is the Lord Jesus Christ. And it is his obedience by which I am accepted. I told you last week, we are, after all, saved by works. They're just not our works, they're his works. We're saved by his faith. Paul said, the life I live, I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. So from Alpha to Omega, from beginning to end, all of our salvation is in Christ. He is our righteousness, a righteousness charged to us, imputed to us, which is alien or foreign to us, but accepted by God when we have faith, through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Father, we pray that you will bless the words tonight in the name of the Lord Jesus. Pray that you'll give us a, a new joy as we consider the great transaction that was made when Jesus took our place and stood in our room instead. And we stand, as it were, in his place, receiving all of the blessings that he earned, all of the righteousness that he earned, and being passed over in the area of punishment because we've been punished in him. Truly, you found a way to be just, and yet the justifier of the soul that believes in Jesus. 
I pray now tonight that you'll help us to be good witnesses to our Roman Catholic friends and to others who may not be Roman Catholics, just people who are lost and don't understand that we can never earn, we can never do, we can never be good enough. We have one who was good enough. We have one who has earned a righteousness he did not need and gives it to those who come to him. We ask these things in the name of the Lord.